Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of the Mainly Football Podcast. I'm your host Jack Heal and today I'm once again joined by George Carden. You okay George? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Happy to be back once again. And we're we're in sunny Salford today, it's very nice and we're on the 10th episode, we're in double figures, can you believe it? I know, already, already. I mean we probably could be about 15 episodes in if we didn't miss any but Mm. uh, we're sometimes a bit lazy unfortunately. (laughs) Now we have been really busy with assignments lately so podcasts haven't been as often but hopefully after Easter we can get back to that. In today's episode we will be discussing the notable increase in crowds at women's football, the ticket prices or ever ever rising ticket prices in football, a preview of the FA Cup weekend and England hitting 10 goals in two games over the international break. So George we're going to start with women's football first and the really notable crowds of late. We saw 60,000 people at the Wanda Metropolitano for Atletico versus Barcelona the other week. We saw 39,000 at the Allianz Stadium for Juventus versus Fiorentina the other week. Now, what do you make of the increase in figures? It's good to see, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we don't really see it in England too much, but in Germany and Spain, these sort of countries, it's uh, you can see the sort of the demand is there, which is always nice to see. Um, and obviously with Ada Hedgerberg, they've done the first Ballon d'Or for women. So um, I'd say, well, 2018 and now 2019, it's looking at women's football is definitely on the up. So, I mean, yeah, nothing to complain about. Indeed, I mean... Obviously, them kind of attendance is 60,000 that isn't seen too often. And I think the way, or at least Juventus have seemed to do it, is by through free entry. Um, obviously, with it being such a big game, it was a title decider in, in the Italian league. And similarly with Atletico versus Barca, do you think free entry kind of as a fir- to get people in the gates for the first time will work best? Yeah, I'd say so. Because, I mean, you look at sort of like the lower leagues of men's football, um, you often see very sort of small amounts of money required or free entry. So I think if the demand's not there at the moment, then you'd want you need something where people um, have a, a good well, they have a better reason to go if it's free, obviously. And um, and obviously once it gets more and more popular, you can start charging. It'd be really good to see if potentially uh, women's super league clubs offered a free ticket for a, a big game in the season, and then because I think once you've got people through the doors, that's half of the job done, and then they'll obviously see what it's about, see the real togetherness of the team and the club, and um, yeah, hopefully it continues to rise. But we've also seen Barclays unveiled as the new title sponsor of the women's super league in recent weeks. The Guardian understands the deal's worth more than ten million pounds over the next three seasons. How how will that benefit women's football? Well, I mean, in terms of funding, it's it's obviously going to help. Um, and what sort of is it? Just as the it's the they're the sort of title sponsor, yeah, so right? Yeah, like they were of the men's Premier League. Yeah, I mean. I mean, having a big brand like that, um, they'll be promoting them as well. And obviously, it's kind of just having two big brand, having sort of the big brand of Barclays and then combining it with the Women's Super League. Um, you can just imagine that'd be a good thing, really, yeah. Indeed. Moving out of domestic football as such, we're mid- in midweek there was the Champions League quarterfinals. Chelsea women beat Paris Saint-Germain's women um, on an aggregate, I think it was 3-2. Now, we saw PSG ultras out in full force. Um, to really spur on their side, in which Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager, described it as something that kind of helped them in in their quest to to get a result and spurred them on. Now, in terms of the support in the women's Super League, there are seem to be quite small small fan groups that really get behind the side, but obviously not on the scale of as PSG. Uh, 
not on the same scale as PSG ultras. What do you think can be done? Because obviously you can't you can't force someone to really really spur on the side if they want to watch the game as a neutral they can watch it as a neutral what do you think yeah well i mean we don't really have ultra groups like uh like the psgs mm. for example so i mean it's um it's not really something you could probably say they're doing a similar way or just um, more vocalized support in terms yeah of- i mean one thing i'd like to see which would actually encourage me to go to more women's football for example um if if more clubs offered I'm sure, I'm pretty sure a few do but if more clubs offered say you buy a season ticket and that gives you entry into women's and men's games so it's just a general a season ticket um, that would probably be the perfect thing um, and I can't think of any of clubs off the top of my head that do that but um, in terms of increasing attendances I'm sure if fans have got a free Saturday or whatever or their team's away the men's team's away from home but the women's team's at home um, having that having let's say a season ticket holder that'd be perfect uh, some kind of similar on that note, uh, something Manchester City did um, is when City th- uh, prior to City thrashing Chelsea six nil um, a few weeks ago, City kind of hosted a, a double City day. So at the Academy Stadium prior, City's women's played and then the men's played later on in the uh, in the afternoon slash evening. Do you think that's something we could we should see more of to kind of because once. As long as the stadiums are in close proximity to each other, that that's really accessible, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't actually aware of that, but um, I, I mean, making more of a day out out of it would be a, it's always a good idea, and um, I mean, sort of having the excuse to watch football is good for any football fan. So, <laughs> um, no, definitely a good idea. True. Now on to the next topic. We're going to be talking about ticket prices. Now. Ticket prices have been rising for a while now, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, quite a lot of teams <laughs> have put caps or freezes in place um, to try and stop that. But either way, with the with the with the increasing media coverage of football, it's always going to be more expensive. Um, now we saw ahead of Barcelona's tie against Manchester United, Barcelona decided to charge Manchester United the equivalent of 102 pound for a ticket at the Camp Nou. And United were originally going to charge Barcelona fans 75, but did go and match their um, their £102 fit. It's just extortionate, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Barcelona, they're, they're pretty well known as one of the most expensive clubs in Europe. Um, which is, I mean, it's one of the reasons why they struggle to fill their own stadium, because they're just so expensive. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very extortionate, really. And, yeah. What what do you really what do you think can be done then? Because obviously United have <clears throat> kind of understandably um, looked to back their own fans and done the same against Barca fans. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, um, what do you think can be done then to kind of? Well, I mean, in the Premier League, as an, if you're an away fan, that it's capped at thirty quid. So that's always. I mean, that's an option. And then whilst it's not, it's much cheaper than one hundred and two. Obviously, it's not the che- It's not as cheap as maybe some people may say it could be. But um, having a cap like that is something that needs to be done, I'd say. Um, I, I do feel like UEFA don't necessarily have that much control over it, but mm. they should sort of be a bit more forceful of it, like we see in the Premier League, for example. No, I agree with that. I mean, I think UEFA could do a lot more. I think in the Champions League, um, City face Spurs in the first European game in their new stadium. And Spurs is charging City fans £60. And although that is significantly less than the Barcelona-Manchester United game, with City having Brighton at Wembley on Saturday, then the Spurs game in midweek, and then Palace away, we all within eight days. 
do you think something more could be done to help fans? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the toughest part is because it's down to the club. So um, it's something you'd have to get with with the how they sort out ticket prices and how they value it. Um, obviously, it's I mean, they're, they're saying they categorise it as some sort of Class A Champions League game. Um, and that's the sort of bracket they do. It's probably set at the beginning of the season. Mm. Um, obviously, you get sort of like Class A, Class B, Class C games. Um, so I'd say, I don't know, it's, it's a tough one really because it's not against the law. There's not actually anything wrong with it apart from whether it's maybe morally a bit yeah. wrong. Um, so, I mean, if it, is there much you can do about it? I wouldn't really say so, to be honest. Fair point. I mean, in terms of uh, specifically more related to Manchester City, now I've seen quite a lot of City fans on social media um, saying that they won't be going to Wembley for the semi-final, which is understandable because obviously the, with the amount of so, with so many games, obviously the Carabao Cup final in February, and then potentially potentially a, a, a large run in the Champions League as well as the FA Cup, alongside the Premier League mm. as well. What what do you make of some city fans choosing not to? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it's obviously down to how they do, how they're doing for money. But I mean, uh, it's maybe maybe it's the price of just being too good, isn't it, Jack? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I understand, I understand the point of view for for Brighton fans. There's obviously a lot; they've sold out a lot more tickets, but it's the first um, FA Cup semi final or final they've been to um, in 1983. I'm going for one, but um, <laughs> for City, obviously. It's still it's not necessarily the biggest occasion for them because they've got they're fighting a lot of um, a lot of battles on multiple fronts this season, so you can you can understand it. I mean, it's surprising that they've still got like eighteen thousand left. I would say um, eighteen thousand, and I mean, Bryson got two, and they should be selling out soon. Mm. Um, City got eighteen thousand, but I mean, for a club of their size, you would expect there to be like for the fans who are potentially who can't afford it. Mm. You'd expect there to sort of be an excess of fans. You'd still be able to go. So that was one thing that maybe surprised me a, a bit. I think what, what I've I've tended to notice in recent years is that well, growing up in school, you don't really see many Manchester City fans. Uh, very. Mm, I much, wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> very much, um, kind of sc- scattered about within the years at primary and secondary school, um, especially even in and around Manchester. The large core was Manchester United, and then obviously some. Liverpool and the occasional Everton. Now, with of late, you kind of really see a lot of lot a lot of young Manchester City fans. Whether mm. you're walking around in the parks, you see a lot of Manchester City kits. Now, do you think? Obviously, you mentioned there about City fans, kind of the behind the ones that maybe what don't go to Wembley. That you're surprised that there's not that secondary set of supporters in behind that would be able to go to the games. Growing up in and around Manchester, you didn't really see too many many Manchester City kits in the uh, in school. It was they were very much scattered in between the years. Now, of late, you kind of you really do see a lot more a lot more of the younger generation in uh, sporting City kits. Partly, I think, due to the due to the success. Obviously, you'd look in. Yeah, of course. Um, you'd look in as a kid. You. I mean, yeah. I mean, on that note, when you're talking about that, it's um, on a on a lesser level, but very similar still. In Brighton, for example, um, is is the exact same really. So, um, back when we were sort of a League One club, League Two Championship over the years, um, in the parks, it'd mostly be sort of 
well, a mixture of Chelsea, Arsenal, United, Liverpool fans. Um, that's what you get down south, unfortunately. Um, but now, so, sort of, since we since we got promoted from the Championship, especially, you see the sort of a lot of the younger generation, and I imagine it's seeing us get to the Premier League and having the new stadium, having the expanded mm. capacity. Um, you see a lot of of the younger generation and this new generation of fans um, supporting Brighton rather than one of the big teams. Mm. So. Um, I mean, it, it it does go to show sort of, obviously if City, uh, there wasn't, you didn't have loads of success as a club up until sort of 15 years ago. That's where it started to uh, sort of build from. Um, so that's it's maybe that it kind of talking about Wembley here with the, with the lack of tickets and the amount of games you've got so you can see why fans aren't going. But maybe it's because it's sort of, there's that sort of void in fans because you haven't necessarily had the sort of consistent success over the years, like some teams like United, for example, um, they've had a sort of success over sort of 30 years. They've got that massive age range, mm. whereas you might not necessarily have that with City, I'd say. No, I, c- I completely agree. There seems to be, within City's fan base, between the ages of about 16 to 25, personally, I'd say that I've, you don't... There's not that core of Manchester City. Obviously, there's quite a lot of that age group that go, but there isn't really that... Massive core, yeah. Yeah, there's not really that, but yeah, I completely get what you're saying in terms of that. That from that age range, age range from mid mid to late teens, in terms of early twenties, you don't really see that that many Manchester mm. City fans in comparison to the older ages, where you de- you definitely see that. I mean, so I, th- I think that's with that gradually increasing now as the generations move on. I think. In future, City won't have this problem. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think as of now, yeah, it's very poignant. And that, just another point on that, in terms of the Wembley, uh, the FA Cup semi-finals being mm-hmm. held at Wembley, what do you make of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy of it. From from I've been to, I went to Wembley uh, away last season for Tottenham away, and it didn't feel like you. It didn't have the same glamour. It just felt like an away day, but. Um, it was kind of so I've never been for a cup match like this so for me I'm really excited um, right I'm right in the top tier for <laughs> paying 20 pounds so I'm um, very excited for that I know that we've I know Brighton have actually been given a couple more blocks um, obviously for us it is a big occasion like I said or mm. a bigger occasion than maybe for City arguably so um, I think we're just there to enjoy it and um, and we've been given a bit more allocation so yeah very excited for it fair enough I mean now a note on that. I mean, I remember when I when I was aged, I was aged eleven, and it was approaching the Manchester City Manchester United FA Cup final of two thousand eleven. This was on the route to when City won the FA Cup for the first time in so many years. Now, a lot of City fans back then was were kind of all in agreement that it's it's a great thing because obviously for clubs that hadn't been to Wembley as often like Brighton and City at the time you get that experience of Wembley um, potentially even if you don't make the final you get that experience but now it's with so many so many Wembley trips in so many years it's it really takes it out <laughs> on the fans to be able to make it so often I mean do you, I think I can't help but feeling that Kind of city going to Wembley so many times year or not year after year, but what, with city going with city going to Wembley so many times, I kind of do feel it should be back at a neutral venue. Well, I mean, are you are you talking in terms of because Tottenham are there or 
No, no, it's just I remember it, it's a, for, for finals between City and the London clubs, it used to be held at Villa Park oh, in the Midlands, okay. so kind of somewhere in between that obviously wasn't too costly to get to. And obviously, I feel it just kind of it kind of takes the glamour away from the final a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it would be a shame to not have the semi-final at the stage. Well, at the stadium that was built for all that money, yeah. and um, it's it's quite a tough one, really. But I, I can see that I can see the point of maybe doing it sort of slap bang in the middle of both teams mm. based on geography. Um, but I mean, being at Wembley for for most fans, the vast majority of the the ninety two football league, Premier League and football league clubs, a great experience, it's yeah. a great experience. So f- for the select few like United and City, where it's still glamorous, but you're going to be going there more than most teams. Um, I don't think that'd be a valid reason to sort of change it up too much. Yeah, fair point there. I mean, we'll just move it on. We've we've had a good discussion there about ticket prices moving on into Wembley and the Wembley experience. Now, a team that do play at Wembley is England, and we saw <laughs> really? them. Really, I didn't realise that. <laughs> and we saw them win five 0 against Czech Republic with a Raheem Sterling hat trick on Friday, and then four days later. 5-1 win in Montenegro. What did you make of the two results? Yeah, well, I watched the um, the Czech Republic game and I watched the second half of the Montenegro game. And, well, especially especially that first game, they just look so convincing. Um, Sterling, I mean, he wasn't... He was sort of... It, what I felt like in the World Cup, he was almost halfway there and his movement was good, but he wasn't really getting the goals or and he just didn't necessarily look that th- uh, threatening in the team um, in the World Cup. Um, he was he was valuable, but in terms of goals, he didn't score too much for in the World Cup. But um, obviously the hat trick, and he scored against Montenegro. Um, he just looks like he looks like he's just carried on that form from City this season, where it's, I would say it's really been his star season so far. And he just looks like that player alongside Kane, who will be the main man. Mm. Um, and it, it, he just looks class, to be honest. Mm. Just a note on Raheem Sterling. I mean, I've really seen him come on this season. He was obviously excellent last year, and he's he's taken it. He's really taken it to another level this year. Um, I remember Gary Neville talking on Sky Sports a while ago, and it was kind of talking through Cristiano Ronaldo's numbers in the Premier League. So he was he was gradual, and then he had one season. I think it was two thousand seven eight where he hit a lot of goals, and from then mm. on, he really went on. Now, I'm not making any comparisons, <laughs> but in terms of Raheem Sterling gradually moving up in terms of goals and influence, and then this season, he's really up there in terms of goals and assists. Could could we see somewhat of a rise in terms of Raheem Sterling becoming one of the world's elite in terms well, of Ballon d'Or? Well, I would say definitely, I was, I was actually going to pose that question to you, but... Um, in terms of his form, especially if he can, if he can, let's say, get golden boot in the Nations League, um, and let's say City win the league, City maybe get a final of the Champions League or win it as well. If they can do all of that, and he's sort of at the forefront of that and scoring goals, um, he'll he'll be one of sort of two or three players that are are the favourites for for the Ballon d'Or. Come the end of 2019, I'd say, yeah. I agree with that. I mean, especially especially the rise when you look at it from how he's had to come come back from all the media criticism and some some elements of the media as well that may now be singing his praises but certainly weren't a few years ago when he when he struggled in that first season from uh, moving from Liverpool to City so it it really is great to see him excelling mm. um to say the least as well in this role at Manchester City now 
just coming back to England, we saw Raheem Sterling on the left yeah. um, for both of the games, left wing, where he's excelled for City this season as well. In terms of England's front three, on that other wing, you've got Jaden Sancho, you've got potentially Marcus Rashford either on either wing or up top, and now even Callum Hudson-Odoi into the frame. Yeah. What, who do you think will be prioritised there? Well, it's... it's it's a it's a plethora of depth really, isn't it? Mm. It's too much to choose from, and um, but I mean that's the best that's the best situation you want really. Um, I would say if they're all fit and firing, I would say Rashford would probably start over Sancho currently, just because he's that bit more established. But um, Sancho looked very good. Um, he got an assist against Montenegro, and um, was unlo- openly, yeah. yeah, and he was unlucky not to score as well. And then um, and then. Yeah, he, he he looks like a real class player, and he was really good against uh, Tottenham in the Champions League, for example. Um, what I really liked about Sterling, actually, going back to him, was that you say he plays that sort of left wing role, but he sort of I love the way he floats round mm. and sort of just provides all that link up play for players. Harry Kane as well, the way he drops forward, drops down, and his his pass for Sancho for the assist yeah. um, was just fantastic. So, I mean. Talking of golden generations, we had we've already had one, but <laughs> I honestly think this looks like a another real, real, way. real good squad for us. Yeah, indeed. I mean, just a, another note on Raheem there. You kind of talked about him getting more involved in the link-up play, and that, that's something kind of that increased. How how would I put it? The increased. He's kind of his confidence just seems yeah, a lot more. He's taken on a, a real increased role in terms of importance this year at City as well but not only in terms of his goal scoring output Mm. in terms of the way he spurs the team on and he can single-handedly change a game now and I think that was the difference I don't think a couple of years ago you wouldn't have thought of him as as someone who could really make that difference yeah well he he seems much more like a player now where you can pass to him and go oh he'll he'll do something good for us Mm. and expect expect him to do something good and when you've got a player doing that, I remember in the championship with Knockout when he got, what was it, something like 16 goals, eight assists, and was our key player. And you, I remember every time you passed him, you're like, OK, what bit of magic is he going to do now? Mm. And with Sterling this season, he just just looks unbelievable. And kind of you expect magic from him rather than just it being a surprise. You expect him to do that amazing thing. Mm. I mean... In terms of his leadership, it's something he's really developed. He's obviously spoke out heavily on the topic of racism and he spoke very, very well about it as well. Mm-hmm. He's clearly given Callum Hudson-Odoi some guidance on the situation, having been racially abused in Montenegro, yeah. among um, as well as Danny Rose in that situation, um, and as well as Danny Rose. I mean, do you think England captaincy... Now, Gareth Southgate was asked on this and he kind of said it's hard to talk about when you've obviously got Harry Kane as the current captain, such a good leader, leading by example, but in terms of mentality as well, do you think Sterling could one day rival rival him for that? Yeah, I mean it's tough when you've got someone like Harry Kane, who's in his prime and you don't normally see a captain getting like got rid of like mm-hmm. that, so unless Harry Kane sort of has some massive injury before a World Cup, that's the only sort of I can only see him getting it there. You think um, he should be turned to in that situation? Or may, I mean, else? someone... I'd personally say um, Henderson's probably our second best option as, as captain. He's a very vocal player. He's a good leader, isn't he? And um, I don't necessarily think being the captain is sort of... You don't necessarily need to be the captain. Someone like Sterling, he's someone who... I don't necessarily think that he'll need. he needs that role. And I, I think he can kind of just do his talking on the pitch and... It's not really yeah. his sort of style. I don't know how vocal he is for City on the pitch, but I think it seems to be something that he's 
is has increased a lot really i mean especially a few weeks ago he was handed um the captaincy mm. head of i think it was bernardo silva or someone like that when um i think it was david silva came off so yeah. I think he's kind of among his city teammates. He's really see, seen as now as a leader. I think that could potentially be the case for England, but obviously, like you say, with Harry Kane being the current captain, it's hard to speculate. Yeah, yeah. And after touching in depth about Sterling, there we'll kind of move on to two other deputants, Declan Rice mm-hmm. and Callum Hudson Odoi. Both came on against che- the Czechs and started against Montenegro. What did you make of them from what you saw? Yeah, I mean. What I was, what I was, uh, what I've said to people about Rice, for example, he he came on against Ser- uh, not Serbia, Czech Republic, and um, w- I think the most important thing for a player coming into like a national team is that they look comfortable and like and it suits them in a way. Mm. And when you saw him sort of sitting in the midfield there, heading balls back to defence and just keeping the ball, recycling possession, um, he looked at home. So, um, and I, I know he's a player that West Ham fans say they want no less than 100 mil for <laughs> which on this season you can argue in this market as well um, I mean it's arguably that he, he could be worth that much um, but I mean no he looked a real good player um, in the game just sort of did the basics well but looks comfortable that's the most important thing um, Callum Hudson-Odoi looks very sort of exciting but I'd say you can tell he hasn't played that much senior football that's the only worry looks slightly raw in that case He's, say. yeah slightly raw not maybe quite not not quite physical enough Um but I would say that's only going to come with time and hopefully Chelsea start him next season more because if yeah. he gets sort of, let's say, half a season or a full season under his belt, then um, then he'll be sort of, he'll become a great player. And I agree. I mean, he's, he's one of them players who, who's got all the talent in, he's got all the talent in the world, but in terms of becoming more experienced as a player, that's only going to come with first team game time. And I think I hope really hope Maurizio Sarri does provide him with that in the latter stages of this and next season. Mm. Um, just on Declan Rice, he he was he was very composed, and I think in terms of of a defensive midfielder for England, he may not have the passing range that Henderson does, but in terms of passing, I'd say passing range and work rate. Um, He's, he's not got in as high levels as Henderson does, but in terms of the defensive aspect, I'd certainly say he's edged yeah, on well, that. Well, he's naturally a centre-back, isn't he? Mm. So he's going to have that natural centre-back um, sort of qualities. side to his game, the qualities of a centre-back. Um, but I would say it's sort of something we need because we've got Eric Dyer, but he's someone who's he's he's good enough, but he's if you really want to sort of challenge for the Euros or the World Cup, you really need someone... Uh, take a class above another level, yeah. and I mean Rice is is the sort of current player you'd expect to get to that level hopefully um, but yeah another player that impressed me actually was Ross Barkley he was really good obviously scored got a couple against yeah. uh, Montenegro and got an assist and um, did well against um, Czech Republic so maybe, whilst he's not doing fantastic for Chelsea um, he's definitely a player who can he's well looking good for England at the moment at least mm. I mean just in terms of players impressing, you've got Ben, another one, Ben, ben Chilwell. He's done well at left back yet again. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that left back situation now? We've got Luke Shaw, obviously, had to pull out with injury, and Ben Chilwell, who could potentially be Manchester rivals next season yeah. if Chilwell was to move to City. <laughs> now, where do you stand on that debate? Yeah, I would say, I would say, at the moment, I would personally rate Luke Shaw over him. I think Ben Chilwell, whilst going forward, he's very good. He's slightly suspect in defence. Um, similar to Rose as well. I don't think Rose is the best in terms of defending. But um, 
it's it's nice to have competition. This is what we we didn't really have in the World Cup, which is unfortunate, was that we didn't have that competition for places. And now we've got that got it out wide, we've got it up front in midfield with Rice. You've got maybe not the defence. The defence is probably a bit of a weak point and the goalie area. Um, I don't think Pickford's really sort of pushed on from his good World Cup um, this season. But I mean. The majority of the players, we've got sort of two to three players who are challenging, which is always nice to see. I mean, just a note on that centre-back there, I agree we don't have the most depth there, but I think I'd say John Stones is nailed on um, for the Nations League. And I think the other position comes down to one of two. I think it'll be Harry Maguire, who's currently one of the starting centre-backs, or Joe Gomez. I think Gomez was unbelievable before he got injured injured and was kind of pivotal to Liverpool's campaign. So, it's a tough one to predict, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, with with Gomez, he was really good alongside Van Dijk and playing at right back even when he has to. Um, I, I think Keane, not necessarily the sort of the players take us forward, but um, good squad player. Yeah, good have. squad player, definitely. I mean, um, Maguire, obviously, he's had a good season for Leicester, had a good World Cup. So, uh, it's one of those three is good um, for us, I'd say. Yeah, some fair points there. I mean, <clears throat> we'll be hoping. England can go all the way and bring it home. Nations League, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, I, th- I feel like it might be a little bit soon just for us to win something. Mm. Uh, my personal prediction is that we're going to go We're going to go quite far in the next World Cup, mm. I hope. I'm sure other fans are hopeful too. That, I mean, the next sort of 10 years, I would be surprised if we didn't win something. Mm. Um, that's obviously coming after a good World Cup campaign and us being hopeful and hoping for the best. But um, for Nations League... Yeah, I mean, we can get far, I reckon. Get to the final, hopefully. Yeah, you'd hope so. I mean, we touched on it before, but not really thoroughly enough. I think we'll we'll make some FA Cup predictions ahead of the weekend. Manchester City versus Brighton on Saturday and Watford versus Wolves on the Sunday. What do you make of them, George? Yeah, it's um, it's it's an interesting FA Cup this time, really, because, well, City's one you'd expect. Wolves and Watford and Brighton, um, less so. Uh, I mean... Uh, I don't know what, how confident are you feeling for the City game. Um, I'll ask you first because I don't know answer yet. <laughs> oh, um, I think City will come out victorious just because of the depth. I think a lot of players are coming back from injury. Benjamin Mendy, although he was fit um, just before the international break, he wasn't threatening Alexander Z- Alexander Zinchenko's spot there. So I think he's obviously an option to come back. John Stones will come back amongst. There's quite a few others. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think the tie bodes in City's favour, but as we all know, City aren't one. Um, City have suffered FA Cup shocks in the past. Wigan, Ben Watson. Yeah, of course. Bad, haunting memories there for you. <laughs> uh, what do you reckon? What's what's your prediction then? I'll go. I'll, I'm, I think it will be close. I have no doubt that Brighton will be incredibly up for it, mm. and I think there's. I don't think. I don't think there's any reason to suggest why Brighton can't push us all the way. Yeah. I'm gonna say two one Manchester City. <laughs> Fair enough. Goal scorers? Oh, goal scorers. I think Sergio Aguero, then Glenn Murray, and then Raheem <laughs> Stone will get the winner. What, late on? Mm. God, that'd be heartbreaking. What are your, what are your thoughts? See, I, I'm. It, obviously, like you said, we're going to be very up for it. Um, I, well, I hope so, at least. Um, it's so tough, really, isn't it? It's, well, it's not that tough. I mean, most people are going to see. Most people have got City on their racket to win. But um, what I think, I think that... If we can, we're quite good at frustrating teams. If we can sort of keep it nil-nil for at least the first half, mm. 
And I feel like the longer it goes on into the second half, the more frustrated City will get. Um, and they've proven they're not unbeatable with Palace beating you, for example. True. So, I mean, the longer we can keep it level, um, I wouldn't expect us to go up um, in terms of going up on the scoreline. Um, but, I mean, the longer we can keep it level and the more we frustrate you, the more chance we have. So, I'm going to go... 1-0 Brighton, 88th minute, Glen Murray winner. <laughs> I think, well, I think from a corner. I think for Brighton, the one weak spot you could look to target will be Nicholas Otamendi. I think if it if he does, if he, I think if he, if Pep Guardiola does opt to go with him over um, Stones and Laporte, as mm. Stones is only really coming back from injury, I think in terms of an aerial threat. Um, and I f- I sometimes like rash decisions he could get caught out. Yeah, I mean, in terms of this, we'll be definitely targeting those set pieces and playing for set pieces because we've got the likes of Shane Duffy, Lewis Dunk, big tall players, Davy Proper, Dale Stevens, they're all over six foot, mm. um, sort of six two, six four level. Glenn Murray's about six two. So in terms of corners, free kicks, we'll definitely be looking to exploit those. Um in open play, it's going to be a very tough match. I don't think Andone's available, and he's sort of a great sort of physical, far striker for us. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be tough in open play. But if we can keep it solid, play for those set pieces, and I mean, if, one, if we can get a score a header, which I imagine I imagine we we could do, um, then who knows? It's going to be a tough one. A fair point, and. I think we'll go for the le- Well, I think we'll go for a shorter prediction on Wolves versus Watford. <laughs> of course, what, what do yeah. you reckon? I mean, my gut's probably going to have to say Wolves. I, I think they've I'd got the quality. I'll say one 0 Wolves. Raúl Jiménez. I'm going to go. I'm going to say three one. Three one Wolves. <laughs> well, we'll we'll be able to see if it comes through over the weekend. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll be reporting next week or after Easter with a, with a positive result for one of us at least. Yeah. Well, one of us will be happy. That's <laughs> that, that's the one thing we can guarantee. <laughs> and on to social post of the week now. Our last element of the show. I'll go first and put forward a tweet by the Sport Bible 23 hours ago. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer owes the house and Virgil van Dijk is currently living in and he will evict him after he's been given the Manchester United job. And they've, they tweeted, when your, landlord is also, when your landlord is also your biggest rival's manager, it was never going to end well. <laughs> and what have you gone for? I've gone for slightly less, less well-known team, Colchester United. I don't know if you saw this. Um, so... It was. I'm not going to read it all out, but basically, they um, they had a burger with a GoPro attached to it, um, fall into their training ground, and um, basically a man had sent the burger to space via balloon, and uh, it landed in their training ground. So um, not something you see every day. <laughs> Indeed, and that brings the end of our show. That has been episode ten of the Mainly Football Podcast. George, thanks thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And now we'll be back. We'll be back um, after Easter. Well, after Easter, so that's going to be sort of end of April, beginning of May, um, episode 11. So we'll be having a little break, unfortunately. Not like we have enough already. But <laughs> um, So, yeah, we'll be back for that, for the sort of the climax of the Premier League and the Champions League. So it's going to be getting very exciting for us. It will indeed. And thank you very much for listening. This has been episode 10 of the Mainly Football Podcast, and goodbye. Goodbye.